Hey church, Pastor Adam here, and I want to say thank you so much for stopping by to join us for church online today. And, and while we are super stoked that you're hanging out with us this morning, we do want to remind you that really this is just is supplemental. And man, it just cannot replace the local church in your life. And so look, we hope that you are encouraged and, and challenged and shaped by today's message that's being preached. Uh, but, but also, we don't want to be uh, your substitute. Uh, for the local church body that you should be involved in. We really do believe that the local church is God's plan A in reaching the world. So with that being said, please come hang out with us in person uh, one Sunday. If you're in Paducah in the area, come hang out with us to get some rest or find a local Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church that you can get plugged in and connected to. Uh, Jesus loves the church and, and we love Jesus and, and we believe that we can better serve uh, Jesus, if we love his church well. So, welcome to rest. Morning, Rest Church. Let's give God some praise this morning. Yeah. Have you ever heard the name August Lesmeyer? Chances are you probably don't know the name, but you do know a very famous photo of August Lesmeyer. A photo was taken in 1936 during a Nazi rally at his workplace where August is conspicuously um, uh, seen not giving the Nazi salute. August was married to a woman named um, Irma Eckler, a Jewish woman which had um, gotten him expelled from society for most um, most things, um, his ability to move freely, his ability to work, all of that was affected due to his marriage to Irma. And ultimately, um, not only did it lead to him getting kind of expelled from society, but he is imprisoned because of this. And like many other European women, during the rule and the reign of Nazi Germany across Europe, Irma lost her life in a concentration camp. When given the opportunity to leave his wife or face punishment for breaking um, the laws of, um, here's, here's the two laws that he was accused of breaking, dishonoring the race and racial infamy under the Nuremberg laws. He refused, he refused. Can you imagine the immense pressure that, that August would have faced here in this moment? He is standing in a crowd of all of his um, fellow co-workers and they are all giving the Nazi salute, essentially saying, death to your wife. Death to your wife, death to the very way of life that you have built. Can you imagine the immense peer pressure here in this moment? Honestly, today, as, as we sit on the other side of history, as we, we set some greater than 60 years on the other side of this particular event, nearing a hundred years away, it still probably makes you sick to your stomach, right? To see that many men giving the Nazi salute. Given what we know about what that meant, the impression that was there. Even in spite of the immense pressure that August faced, they both chose truth over circumstance. 
Let's say that again. They both chose truth over circumstance despite the pressure. St. Augustine has a quote, and I want to give this to you this morning. And I'm going to invite you right now to take out your phone, to take a photo of this quote, to write this quote down, to write it in your Bible, to say it to your kids, to, to make this quote a pillar in your life. Here it is. Right is right, even if no one is doing it. Wrong is wrong, even if everyone is doing it. I'm going to say that again. Right is right, even if no one is doing it. Wrong is wrong, even if everyone is doing it. If you're a mama or a daddy this morning, can I get a... Come on, I don't know that, I don't know that you're raising kids. <laughs> if you're a mama and a daddy this morning, can I get a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many times have your kids came and said, well, everybody's doing it? My mom used to always say, well, if everybody was jumping off a bridge, would you do it? And I, I would be like, well, it depends on how high the bridge is. Yeah, it's all about what's underneath there. This morning, as we step into the third week of our discussion of looking at the culture of Rest Church, this sermon series entitled Under the Hood, as we check out what's under the hood of Rest Church, what we are doing is we're not trying to tell you who we want to be, we're telling you who we are. What makes us who we are? What is the DNA of our church? And, and, and two weeks ago, I kicked off this series as I began to talk about a culture of growth. Here at Rest Church, we have a culture of growth where we we desire we seek everything about us is to be a church that makes disciples that makes disciples that what church that we create a life cycle of folks who are constantly pressing towards Jesus in growth and also fulfilling the Great Commission. Last week, Pastor A.B. talked about having a culture of response where we as a church are actively in response to Jesus, moving towards Jesus with our heads, with our hearts, and with our hands, that we are constantly seeking ways that we can further respond to the gospel to the world, and to us as a church family. And here this morning in week three, we're going to look at a culture of truth. Say truth. Here at Rest Church, we take God's truth seriously. We take his word seriously. We are committed to faithfully teaching all, say all, of the scriptures. Even the parts that are difficult, or make us feel uncomfortable. This keeps us all humble. We believe that no one is better than anyone else. We all need Jesus. Can I get an amen? We teach the parts that aren't fun at times. If you've been around for a while, you know. You've, you've seen uh, the pastor team laden with anxiety sometimes before we take the pulpit. I can tell you, a few months back when I got up to, to teach on spiritual gifts, on the gifts two in particular, as some people call them, the sign gifts, the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues. I, 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 was, I was basically borderline like psychotic leading up to that message. I remember a few months back, A.B. got up and faithfully taught against, against murdering innocent babies. And I, and I remember the, the pressure 
that he was under. And it's not that, as you know, we do not go out of our way to bring up political topics because we're an expository church where we go verse by verse, word by word. And we do that so that we can't avoid the hard things. When I think about this building a culture of truth and standing upon God's truth, the scriptures, when everyone else is saying and doing the opposite, my mind immediately goes back to the Old Testament and the book of Daniel where we find four guys who epitomize the character of, of, of standing upon the word of God in the face of uncertainty. Let me set the background for you. In the southern kingdom of Judah, a great king, King Josiah, dies. Josiah has, has brought forth all of these reforms in Jerusalem. He has set back things right in the temple where the previous evil kings had basically been doing pagan worship in the temple. And he and he's came to basically restore it and to put it right. But then he dies and there's kind of this power vacuum that's left and a quick succession of kings changes back and forth. But finally, a third son, Jehoiakim, ascends to the throne. And what we find in 2 Kings 24, it tells us that Jehoiakim was evil in the sight of the Lord. His wickedness and his unwillingness to repent as the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied led to complete and total and utter downfall of the nation of Judah and ultimately destruction of Jerusalem. And this particular thing I want to point out is that God provided Jehoiakim an opportunity. In fact, Jeremiah begged Jehoiakim to repent so that God's wrathful hand would be stayed away from Jerusalem. But he refuses. And what we find in Daniel chapter 1 and 2 Kings 24 is just as God had said, the king of the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, marches his army into Jerusalem, taking full control of the city, including the temple. King Nebuchadnezzar takes control not only of the city, not only of the temple mount and the holy of holies, but also enslaves the people of Israel in service to him. I want to point out one thing before I go any further. One key point. This is the very, very last moment that the Ark of the Covenant will ever reside in the Holy Holies on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. This is the very last time. In fact, what we see in Jesus' day, the Holy of Holies, is, is, is really, it's a sham. It's, it's not truly the Holy of Holies. Because where the Ark of the Covenant resides in the Old Testament, as we know, is a representation of God's physical presence on earth. And it is a, absolutely a heartbreaking moment for the nation of Judah, for the people of Israel, to see the complete and total destruction. And what we see is Nebuchadnezzar actually takes the Ark of the Covenant and he puts it in one of his Babylonian temples as part of his shrine to the gods. In particular, he wants to raise King Nebuchadnezzar out of this group of indentured servants now, a select group of young men 
in the way of the Babylonians. He wants to select the choice men to become princes of not only Judah, but princes of Babylon in the process. And so, church, I want you to open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to read kind of a bunch of little sections of text throughout three different chapters. But Daniel chapter 1, we're going to start at verse number 3. When you got it, say got it. If you don't, say don't. There it is. There, I got you. Got you. Verse 3, then the king commanded Asphaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand the king's palace. And to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate. And of the wine that he drank. That they would be educated for three years. And at the end of that time they would stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel... He called Belzar, Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Michelle, he called uh, Meshach, Azariah, he called Abednego. So we're going to pause right there. So as we see in verse 4, we see that he wants to choose youths, say youths, without blemish and part of a family of notoriety or nobility. Scholars believe that these Four, Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego would have been around the age of 14 when they are chosen, when they are plucked from their people and they are set apart by Nebuchadnezzar to work in his court. On the surface, we might go, man, that's a dream job because when we look at the job description, they're gonna get to eat what the king eats and they're gonna drink the choice wine that the king drinks and they're going to stay in the palace. Man, this is probably the best job. You're not an indentured servant out in the fields. But hold on, wait a second. Because he is, these, these four boys are chosen by the chief eunuch, scholars also believe that there is a high probability that these four guys would have been castrated. That they would have became eunuchs as well. In their service. This is especially a big deal or a huge blow to these four guys because in Jewish culture, the continuation of your lineage is paramount, it is important. And so these four dudes lose their ability to continue their family tree in service to King Nebuchadnezzar. Additionally, these guys, as the scriptures show, would have been educated in every single way of the Babylonian life. And in in their education, they would have learned everything as literature, but they would have also learned everything about worship to their pagan gods. And in, in, in particular, their pagan worship would have included sex cult worship. Therefore, we can assert that these four young youths, these four young teenagers would have seen every unspeakable thing that your mind can imagine that the Babylonians would have dabbled in. 
to add insult to injury. Nebuchadnezzar changes their names. He gives them pagan names, which is a, which is a big deal because their names, the names of Jews, they, they mean something. They have a very significant meaning behind them. And so what he does is he takes their, their name that has a meaning out of the Torah and he exchanges it for a pagan name. Let's, let's, let's kind of look at these. Daniel. His real name means God is my judge or Elohim is my judge. And he changes it to Belshazzar. Bel protects the king. He literally exchanges the name of God, Elohim, for Bel, a false pagan god. Hananiah, God is gracious. Elohim is gracious to Shadrach under the control of Eku. Eku is the goddess of the moon in the Babylonian pantheon of gods. Michelle, there is no one like Elohim. There is no one like God. And he names him Meshach. There is no one like Eq, the Babylonian moon god. Azariah, Elohim has helped me, or God has helped me, and he names him Abednego, the servant of Nebo, the God of wisdom. So, so what we see is the very fabric of their life in every single way is being taken from them, and they're being force-fed this pagan ideology. So as the continue goes, the story continues, one night King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he inquires upon all of his wise men. He says, hey, come interpret this dream. And he becomes increasingly frustrated because none of his wise men have the capability to interpret this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. And he becomes so frustrated that he says, if you cannot tell me this dream, I'm going to pull every single wise man in and I'm going to tear them limb from limb and I'm going to kill them. And so they start to panic, right? They can't tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dream means. And so as the chief of the guard comes and he, he, he takes Daniel. Daniel was, what is the meaning of what's going on? And he says, well, Nebuchadnezzar has, not ha- has had this dream and no one can interpret it. So all the wise men, which you happen to be one of, must be killed. And he goes, well, I can interpret that dream. And so quickly the guard takes Daniel to the king. Daniel meets with Nebuchadnezzar and informs him that it is not his power, it is not upon his own ability that he can interpret the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, he says, no one, no human on earth can, but I know a God who can. And through God, as me as his vessel, I can interpret this dream. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, Daniel is able to break down every step of Nebuchadnezzar's dream to an astonishing level. Notice how King Neb responds here. Daniel chapter 2 verses 46 through 48. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, check this out. I want you to catch this phrase. Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. 
Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief perfect a prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. In a moment, King Nebuchadnezzar has went from wanting to kill all of the wise men to now falling on his face before his subject, Daniel. And not just a subject of Babylonian blood, but a subject of Jewish blood. He has went from wanting to strike them down to calling Daniel's God, Elohim Yahweh, the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Check that out. Hold on to that phrase right there because this is paramount that you catch this. Hold on to the fact that Nebuchadnezzar says, truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. Why? Because we're gonna go immediately to chapter three. Check this out, check this out, chapter three. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits in breadth and six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. We're gonna skip down to verse four. And the herald proclaimed, you are commanded, O peoples, O nations and languages, that when you hear the sound, the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship to the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Verse six, key part. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, and every kind of music, all the people, the nations, and languages, what did they do, church? They fell down and worshiped the golden image that the king had set up. Just as what you saw in the photo of August Lesmeyer, for fear of persecution, for fear of ridicule, for fear of loss of food, for fear of loss of life, what does everyone do? They fall down. They succumb to the peer pressure. As we know, haters are going to hate. Hate, hate, hate. And what we see is that these four men, Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, have the favor of God upon their life. If you read the book of Daniel, it becomes very apparent that they have the favor of God upon their life. And so because of Daniel's success, as, as he interprets the dream, Daniel becomes the ruler over Babylon. He's over all the wise men. And Daniel says, hey, I'm not gonna take all this success upon myself. He takes Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, and he says, you guys will be the governors of Babylon, and I will just stay over top of the wise men of the Babylonian empire. And so their success has now chided or chafed the men of Babylon. They are now subjugated to the rule of these petty Jews. And so they are gonna hate hate, hate, right? And they know that this new golden image is an absolute affront to a holy God. And so what do we see? Some of the um, Chaldean men come forward to rat out Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, the guys who are governors. 
because they refuse to fall down in worship to the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Verse 12, let's pick that up. There are certain Jews, these are the Chaldeans coming to Nebuchadnezzar, who you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. Can you imagine how the king feels? These men pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I think we can pick up from the language here that Nebuchadnezzar loves Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that, they are, that, that the favor of God is so apparent upon their life that he doesn't even want to have this conversation. I, I, as, as a father, when my, my kids do something that, that I know that they have to be disciplined for, they, they have to be disciplined, like trying to play in traffic, I normally start with something like, oh, oh, Ezra, it's always Ezra. Oh, Ezra, it's never Ezekiel, it's never Ezekiel. Oh, Ezra, why did you do this? Why are you making me do this? You know that conversation that you have as a parent? Why are you making me, and he's like, I'm not making you do anything. Right, yeah, you're like, hey, hey, you, God's grace, Father, give God's grace. But I think we can, we can infer, we can pick up from the text here, oh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He is, his heart is broken here in this moment. Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the hornpipe lyre and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good, a.k.a., what he's saying there, well and good, we'll call it even. If you hear the sound of the music and you fall down in worship, we'll let all the other times slide. We'll call it even. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Man, you got to love the guts on Nebuchadnezzar. And who is the God who would deliver you out of my hands? Like, who do you think you are? I am the king, you pesky little governors. There is no one that can deliver you out of my hands. But as much courage as Nebuchadnezzar has in this moment, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego has five times more. He says, if you're ready, he's essentially saying, I'm going to give you some time to think about it, Nebuchadnezzar is. He's like, I'm going to give you a moment to, to contemplate the, the, um, the recourse of your actions that are coming. If you don't fall down in worship, you know what's coming. So I'm going to give you a second. I'm going to give you a moment to hesitate. I'm going to give you a moment to think. I'm going to put the pressure down on you. But notice this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar. We have no need to answer you in this matter. 
If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand. O king. That's faith. That's radical faith. But if that's not enough for you, they take it another step further. Verse 18, but if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They essentially say, death or life, we will not submit to your false god. Death or life, I will not bow my knee to something that is against my God. Death or life, I will not confess something that is a bold-faced lie. Death or life, I will stand on the principle upon the word of God. And as you can imagine, Nebuchadnezzar is ticked off Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. The expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the fiery furnace heated up seven times more than it usually was heated. So essentially, as I said, he, has, he starts with his fatherly nature. Oh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He, he's trying to coerce them into his way. And in a moment when they respond with no fear, in a moment when they respond in their knowing that death and life is on the line, but their God, Elohim Yahweh, will sustain them, they, he immediately flips the script and goes from that father mode to absolute, utter killer mode. There's a huge couple of things that we need to set down on here and, and, and talk through. First thing is this, where is everyone else that came with them from Jerusalem? It wasn't just four boys who were selected out of Jerusalem. It wasn't just four boys out of Judea, that, their Judah, that were selected to be in his service. Where are all of the rest of them? Why is it only these guys in the book of Daniel who seem to be incongruent with the Babylonian way of life? It's clear, I believe, that they're all bowing down to the idols of Nebuchadnezzar. They have chose convenience over commitment. They have chose convenience over commitment. Church, I, I have to ask you, in your life, in the application of your life right now, in your spiritual journey with Jesus, are you choosing convenience over commitment? Are you openly choosing convenience over commitment to God? Do you find yourself bowing down and saying things right now in this season of your life that you know are diametrically opposed to the word of God? Do you find yourself nodding in agreement with the world because it is convenient versus speaking the truth of God? Do you find yourself on your knees subjugated to people in power because you're afraid you'll lose your job, that you're afraid you'll lose your livelihood? When the going gets tough, the cream rises to the top. 
Under the pressure, those who only give lip service to God will quickly fall away because they choose convenience over commitment. It has become clear. Only a few are willing to give it all in service to God here in Judea. And in our culture, it is the same. Only a few are willing to give full commitment to God. This is why Jesus expresses in Matthew 7, 14. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. What is the way? What is it? It's hard. Say it's hard. You know, sometimes when we ask Ezekiel in our home to do something that he doesn't want to do, he always responds, but dad, it's so hard. And we always are like, yeah, discipline sucks. Can, do you all agree? Like eating good is not fun, right? Like I can tell you firsthand, dieting is the worst thing ever. But my blood pressure was high and I was morbidly obese and the doctor said, you're gonna die by your 40. And I'm 35, let's not, you know, let's figure some things out, bro. It, it, discipline is hard, and that's why Jesus says in Matthew 7, 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Those who find it are few. And I think it comes down to this very thing, is that we choose convenience over commitment if we take a step back and look for an application in the context of our world the the sad reality is is that pastors all over america are teaching a babylonian style of christianity one that would suggest what's the big deal about bowing down to the idol come on you can live to fight another day it's okay to do it. You're protecting your family. You're protecting your family. Don't find yourself at, at the edge of the sword. Don't find yourself getting your limbs ripped from your body. Why, why would you do that? God is love. The Christianity preached today does not draw a hard line in the sand around the truth found in God's word. Why? Because they don't preach the truth of what Jesus said in the Gospels. In an effort to make Jesus more palatable, they turn the radical, literal words of Jesus into figurative ones. The call to come follow Jesus found in the Gospels is a call to come and die. The call to follow Jesus is a call to come and die. This is meant to be understood both figuratively and literally, figuratively in the fact that we are to every single day exchange our fleshly desires for spiritual desires to not live by the flesh. Because as Paul says, if we live by the flesh, we will die by the flesh. But if we live by the spirit, we will have life through the spirit. But also to come and die literally. To come and die literally. That's why the disciples, all of them, 
all 11 that are left after Judas's suicide lay their life on the line day in and day out. We can say with 100% certainty through church history that 10 of the 11, all but the apostle John, died a martyr's death. The call of Jesus to come and die was a literal call for the early church. And as if John wasn't enough, John was literally stuck in a vat of boiling oil and it did not kill him. So it wasn't that he wasn't eager to give his life. It's that for some reason Jesus wanted to preserve it. But the call to come and follow Jesus takes courage. It takes courage to choose commitment over convenience. And that's exactly what Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego have done here in the scriptures. The courage of these boys is unbelievable. They do not pause or take time to talk it over. They don't huddle up. They say, no, my God is bigger than you. My God is bigger than your little G gods. My God is bigger than this furnace. My God is the way. In this moment, they chose the truth of God's word over their own earthly life. In this moment, they chose the truth of God's word over life. They knew that for them to bow before anyone in worship was a sin against God. To to bow before a graven image was an affront to a holy God. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth below or that is in the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God am a what church? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego completely embody what it means to have a culture of truth in your life. Even when it's not popular, or even when the world might stand or culture might stand directly opposed to the truth that we hold, the word of God is immovable, it is authoritative, and it is inerrant. Therefore, we must embody a culture of truth in our own lives. So why, though, hold on, let's back up now, let's back up, let's, let's bring it back into the text. Why is King Nebuchadnezzar so angry? Because don't you remember, in, in, in chapter 2, we, we finish out Daniel's vision, he interprets Daniel's vision, and he, what is it he says in chapter 2? He, he says, your God is the God of gods, Right? He is the king, he is the Lord of kings. He is the revealer of mysteries. And and so so what we see here is Nebuchadnezzar has, he has acknowledged that Yahweh, Elohim, is God. That he is moving, that he is effective. So why is Nebuchadnezzar so brokenhearted that they will not bow to him or bow to his statue? And this is big because this speaks directly to our culture today. Right here in the make your own truth, find your own truth world, this speaks directly to it. He is mad because of their choice about the exclusivity of God. He is mad about their choice about the exclusivity of God. They are saying to him, 
There is one God. And all other little g gods are not God. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar bows down to Daniel and says, I believe your God is the God of gods. But, that, but what he's actually saying, we read between the lines, what he's actually saying, church, is I will add your God to the laundry list of false gods I already worship. So long as I can say your God is just one of many other gods, everything else will be okay. See, that's where, that's where Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego are incongruent with the Babylonian way of life. It's because they're saying, yes, we see that your God did this miraculous things, but your God is not exclusive. He is not the exclusive way of truth. He is just in the pantheon. He is just a part and parcel of the greater little G gods that we all worship. And you can worship that God, and that's cool, as long as you don't say he is exclusive. As long as you don't exclusively worship him. As long as all the other ways are okay, we're good. But the moment the boys say, our God is God and your God is not, he loses his mind on them. This is going on today. This is absolutely a part of our culture, and that's why here at Rest Church, we want to have a culture of truth where no matter who it makes mad, we speak the truth. When it comes to the word of God and being a Christ follower, the honest truth is, is you can go out into the world and you confess Jesus as Lord, most people are gonna say, that's great, that's beautiful, oh, that's good for you. Thank you for finding your truth. I'm glad you have your truth. But the moment that you quote John 14, six, where Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father, no one can have eternal life, no one can be saved, no one can reach heaven except through me, the world loses their mind on us. Right, why? Because it is exclusive. In fact, you can go say, Jesus saves sinners, and, and they're going to agree. They're gonna be like, yes, yes, because if you go to a college today and you talk about Jesus, they're gonna say his teachings were beautiful. If you go to a Muslim mosque and you talk about Jesus, they're gonna say he's the second greatest prophet in Islam. But the moment that you say there is no other name under heaven and earth which a person can be saved, as Acts 4.12 tells us, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. The response of our culture is just like Nebuchadnezzar. They are intolerant to the exclusivity of Jesus and will go scorched earth if you insist upon it. Just like King Nebuchadnezzar does, when we stand for biblical truth, the world is going to spit in our face because they do not want anyone to hear them say it is exclusive. Jesus is the only way. Narrow is the way and hard it is to get there because you need Jesus. They are cool with us doing our own thing. 
They were cool with us, with, with us coming in here and dancing and singing worship songs about Jesus. They're cool with that. But what they're not cool with is us saying it's the only way to heaven, that there is only one name through which you might be saved and get direct relationship with God, and that is Jesus. They're cool with us doing our own thing, but they do not want any part of being called to repentance themselves personally. Robbie Gallaty, on this particular topic, he had a quote, and it says this, the world is saying to us, you can have Christian conviction, just keep it in the closet. Establishing a culture of truth means we have to embrace all of God's word when we find ourselves at odds with it or when others find that it does not fit their agenda. A culture of truth begins and ends with the scriptures, the holy word of God, the Bible. Here at Rest Church, we affirm sola scriptura, meaning we believe that Scripture alone is our infallible, inerrant authority. Sola Scriptura teaches us that in the end that all other authorities in Christian life serve underneath Scripture. While Scripture alone rules over authorities, for it alone is God's inspired, inerrant, and sufficient word of truth. So let me break that down for you. Let me take it out of theological frameworks. What I'm essentially saying at the very fundamental primary level is this, is I don't care what any whack-a-mole preacher tells you, even if I tell you. If it is contrary to what the book of the, what this scripture says, it is a lie from the pit of hell. Now I realize that makes some folks uncomfortable because, and I'm gonna be honest, at times it makes me uncomfortable. You wanna know why? Because I find my life still riddled with sin that is opposed to the word of God. And so sometimes when I come to the scriptures, it is, it is more like a mirror than it is a battering ram because when I look in there, I see the brokenness of my sin. Now I'm, 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 I'm with you, there is, millions of people who use that book to beat people over the head day in and day out. Don't misconstrue me. Don't hear me saying, go out and tell the world they're heathens. That's not what I'm doing. But what I'm telling you is when we come into these four walls that we must teach the truth even when it makes us uncomfortable. That we must sift our lives and sieve out the sin that is inside of us. We must sift our lives and we must pull out the things that are opposed to God, our opinions that are opposed to God, our our way of culture that is opposed to God. And we must become more like Jesus today than we were yesterday. That's why a culture of truth begins and ends with the scriptures. We don't get to pick and choose from it as we will, or we don't get to ignore the context for a better application. Listen to this quote from Bodie Hodge. When our perception of reality is refuted by God's word, we need to change our perception. As sinful beings, our perceptions and thoughts can be wrong. 
when our perception of reality is refuted by God's word, we need to change our perception. Our goal every week is the same. Here is to preach the unveiled word of God no matter the consequences. Additionally, it's why we're structured differently here at Rest Church than many other churches. And, and, and maybe you're a first-time guest. You don't understand what I'm picking up. The, the leadership structure here is completely different. There's four elder pastors, and we have five pastors. The four of us function as the eldership that lead our church. We lead it completely. We are not a congregationally-led church. We are held by the eldership. And why do we do that? Because that is the biblical model laid out by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy. It is the biblical model also laid out by the Apostle Paul in the book to Thessalonican church. It is the model that we see in the New Testament church. It is not led by one guy. It is not led by anyone on a power trip, but it is co-equally led by the apostles. And so here we attempt to emulate that as, uh, in our leadership structure as both elders and pastors. That's by benchmark number one. If you look back on that very back wall, on the black benchmark to what will be your far left, says Jesus is our senior pastor. That the culture here at rest is to build around Jesus, to talk about Jesus, to talk about what Jesus did to come radically save people and not about the pastors. To make it all about you as a faith community and not about us because we are minuscule, we are nothing, and the gospel community is everything. That's why here at Rest Church we don't have deacons like a lot of other churches have deacons. Our deacons are servants, as the scriptures also portray in 1 Timothy and in the letters to the church in Thessalonica. They are to be servants. They are to go and take care of the the orphans, the widows. And, And this is instituted in the book of Acts for a very specific reason, because the apostles, they were working and dealing with so many things, such as sickness and prayer and all of those things for the greater congregation that they were never studying the scriptures, and they didn't have time to prepare to teach. And so the apostles raised up these deacons and the first deacon Stephen that was chosen was chosen to serve the people so that the apostles could focus on teaching and leading the church and so here at Rest Church once again because it's what the scriptures model is why our deacons aren't basically the the rulers of the church they are servants a culture of truth Another way that it's portrayed here. As you know, I've been preaching for 47 minutes. Hi, welcome to rest. We preach long messages because we believe that the scriptures need time to dissect, to open, to exfoliate, and to help people understand. And we preach expository, verse by verse, word by word, typically always as we go through books, because we want to emulate how you should read the Bible in your quiet time. And you say, oh, but pastor, people lose their attention after 15 or 20 minutes. The statistics would tell you otherwise. In fact, right now, statistics are showing that the average sermon at, the, at a growing church rate, the fastest hundred growing churches in America today, the average sermon is anywhere from 45 to 50 minutes. So what is that saying? That people are craving truth, not powder puff cupcakes on a Sunday morning. 
So now it comes down to how do we drive truth in in our own life? How do we continue to establish a culture of truth in our church? Well, here it is, number one, make a decision to take God's word seriously in your life. You wanna drive a culture of truth, spend time with God's word and say, what it says, I will take it literal. What it says, I will put it into action in my life. What does it mean to make a decision? The literal definition of making a decision is cutting off all other options. Make a decision to take God's word seriously in your life. The best example I've ever heard of this is it's like an army going to war and as they roll their warships into the harbor, they burn their ships so that everyone knows when they go to war, no one's going home. They're only going forward, they're never going back. You can never retreat back to your sin. So I'm asking you today to burn the ships in your life, to say, I will make a radical decision to take God seriously, to take his word seriously, to follow him, to come and die with Jesus. Number two, like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, and what we also see later on in the book of Daniel, decide how you will respond prior to the situation. Notice Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego did not need a moment to think about it. They didn't need to think through it because they had already decided what they would say, how they would respond in the face of the situation, in the face of the prayer. The reason we cave so many times to the things that are opposed to the will of God, to the word of God, is because we haven't been fully committed to God's word to know how we should accurately respond. Remember the quote from St. Augusta, right is right even if no one is doing it. Wrong is wrong if everyone is doing it. And lastly, I can't say this enough. A culture of truth starts at home. Notice this, these, these kids are 14 years old. They're 14 years old. How is it that they, that they resist the onslaught of paganism that is being poured out on them? How is it that they are able to do this? I, I, I can contend it's because they were discipled at home. They were being taught the word of God so that it was impressed upon their heart. Mom and dad, I want to tell you this. We cannot press the snooze button on discipleship when it comes to our kids. Because I can guarantee you they are being indoctrinated by their friends, by their teachers, by TikTok, by Instagram. They are being indoctrinated in all these other places that are opposed to the way of God. And so you want your youth, you want your kids to be able to stand up against the world, to stand up to the things that are opposed to God. We need to begin to disciple our kids at home. What does that mean? What does that look like? That means your kids need to see you reading the Bible. They not only need to see you reading the Bible, they need to see you living the Bible. You know why so many pastor's kids leave the church? It's because their pastor dad doesn't live the same way at home as he does in the church. You know why the church is losing people and hemorrhaging people? It's because we're fake, man. We're fake. We come here and say, oh, Jesus, holy, holy, holy. And we go home and we cuss out our wife. We cuss out our husband. We tell our kids they're stupid. They'll never amount to anything. But that's opposed to the word of God because the word of God says that they're wonderfully and fearfully made. It starts at home. It starts at home. Don't let the only voice your kids hear about truth 
come from the world because I'm telling you they will depart from the truth of God's word. Teach, read, and impress upon your kids the biblical truth of the scriptures. When was the last time you opened the Bible with your kids? When was the last time you talked to your kids about Jesus? When was the last time you knelt beside their bedside at night and you prayed over them with them and you taught them how to pray? They're only going to model what they see. We can't expect them to show up for an hour and a half on Sunday morning and think it's all going to work out. It's not going to happen. We have to make the choice to make a culture of truth at home. Verse 24 of chapter 3. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. At this moment, they've already bound Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And they throw them into the fiery furnace. And it is so hot there in the furnace that it kills the servants who throw them in. But Nebuchadnezzar from his seat looks down into the furnace. And he is astonished, church. He is astonished. And he, he declared to the, his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered, But I see four men unbound. Walking in the midst of the fire, they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth one is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God. Of the what church? The most high God. Come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the scripture goes on to say that not a hair on their head was singed. If you choose to follow Jesus today, if you make a commitment to live under his word, I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you, you will face oppression, you will face hardships, you will face calamities. I, I can guarantee it because Jesus said it multiple times. If the world hates you, do not be dismayed for it hated me first. The day is coming and used to, I used to think pastors were old fogies when they would say this. I used to think they were crazy when they would say this. The day is coming when this sermon right here will land me in prison. In fact, if I preached this sermon today in Canada, I would be jailed for hate speech. Because I'm saying that there is one way, that there is an exclusive way to Jesus and it is through the confines of what this book lays out. That if we would confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts and surrender our lives to Jesus as Lord, we can be saved. But apart from that, we will face a torment of hell after life. That is hate speech in Canada today. 
And on the course of where we're going, there will be hate speech here. But it's the truth. And I cannot walk away from it. You cannot walk away from it. And we must stand firm in our resolve to speak the truth as laid out in God's word. You say, Pastor, I, 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 don't, have the, I don't have the courage to do it. I don't, I don't have the willpower to do it. The scriptures reveal to us That in our hour of need, in our moment of need, when we are standing at the outskirts of that furnace, when the fire is raging and the world saying to us, either you follow this thing and you say everybody can do it, you say they can live however they want, or you're going in this furnace. The scriptures tell us that in those moments, the Holy Spirit will provide us the word to say. You say, I'm not good with theology. I'm not good with witnessing Well, I want to tell you, today you need to make a commitment to know God's word so that you can. You need to burn the ships in the harbor and follow God. Because just like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, even if you get put in the fiery furnace, the Son of God will be walking alongside you. Even if the world wants to push you down, push you out, and cancel culture says, no, you can't say that anymore. You need, you, uh, we're, you're fired from your job. You, you, you can't come to the supermarket anymore. You can't, you can't say that. You can't live like that. I want to tell you that Jesus is in the fire with you. Do you have the guts today? Do you have the commitment to say to Nebuchadnezzar, to say to the Babylonian world that's around us? Do you have the guts to say to culture today, even if he doesn't rescue me, I'm cool? Do 